Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. It's really important for us to make sure that we build what we believe on the Scriptures, seeking the truth making sure that we are not trying to support what we believe, but really finding out the truth. This podcast, this Q&A, is a supplement to our teachings. We have two services every week, a Sunday morning and a Wednesday, a Wednesday night, a midweek service, and this is available so that we can ask questions about the studies and also any other questions that you might have. If you have a question about anything, whether it is prophecy, or hard questions about apologetics, or just difficult hard questions, uh, or questions that are simple. If you're a new believer and you have questions, that's what this is for. By no means am I saying that I've got all the answers to all the questions, but I'm saying we'll take a look at it. And if we can't figure it out, I'll go away, come back later on, we'll try to look at it again. But I want to welcome you if you're here on this podcast for the very first time. You can subscribe to TruthQuest Podcast everywhere that you subscribe for podcasts. Just TruthQuest Podcast with Robert Furl, pull it up and subscribe to it. Hope that um, all of our content on there, the hot topics, the full-length teachings, and these Q&As are a real blessing to you, help you draw closer to Christ, live more for Him. That's our desire. That's why we do these. So our first question is today from our study on Wednesday night. And the question came up, excuse me, our study on, this is Wednesday night, our study on Sunday. Uh, this passage that we covered is where the Sadducees try to prove there is no resurrection. And Jesus says that the sons of the resurrection are like the angels, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So this caused someone to think about Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where it says, in fact, let me just go ahead and pull that up and I'll read it to you just to make sure that we've got it. Uh, so we'll look at um, Genesis, Genesis 6, Bible, Genesis all right, let's get there. Genesis 6, and it's 1 through 4. And let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you, where it says, uh, Now it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them, that sons of God, and in Job, sons of gods are son, the sons of God are angels, that sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. So God is clearly upset because of what has happened. Now, the first century view, the view all the way up until a certain point in church history, was that these were angels that saw the daughters of men and that lived with them. Now, does it mean that angels have bodies that can have babies and that the Nephilim are a result of that? I don't know. It's a strange passage, but it could be possessed men. And how would that relate in the Nephilim? I don't know. If possessed men have babies, how does that affect their offspring? There's a lot we don't know. And I think that it's really important for us to be able to understand and say, you know, there's some things we just don't quite get. I don't like the, the theory that this is the sons of Seth seeing the daughters of Cain and going and marrying them. It seems, it seems contrived to me. Doesn't mean that I'm right, but it just seems contrived to me. So when we ask the question then, what does it mean can, that angels can't marry? And if these are angels marrying, what's that all about? Well, it would be angels that didn't keep their proper abode, their proper home. They got out of bounds, they got out of lines, and God sent the flood to restart mankind and to deal with these angels. I want to pull up another a couple of passages here. These are passages that talk about this event in the New Testament. The first one is 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, this word for hell isn't the lake of fire, but it's saying that God cast them down because they would be judged. It seems if these are angels and they did marry women and have children with them, that God judged them. 
Now look at Jude 1.6. And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode. Remember, they went and took wives and lived with them, so they left their abode, their home. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And so it would seem that God took this and, and judged those angels who did not keep a proper place. Now, some will say, well, this wasn't the event of the flood. It was other angels that didn't keep their proper abode. But look at 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. But whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So he goes and speaks to these spirits in prison who, who uh, during the days of Noah did something wrong while the ark was being prepared in which a few souls, eight souls were saved through water. So it seems to me that by these verses and because of these verses that it makes mention of angels. And I lean that way. Again, it doesn't mean I'm right. When you're looking at passages like this, you have to make some decisions. And the decision that I ended up making was, I think it's strange, but I think it happened. And I think it explains the Nephilim and the Rephidim, the giants that were in the land in those days and afterwards. And you say, well, how could it happen afterwards? Well, because some more angels did that. Could angels do it today? Maybe, but they don't want to be kept in chains until darkness. So, um, that Jesus says they don't marry nor are given in marriage. There was never a plan for them to do it, but some of them rebelled and left their proper abode. So I don't know that that passage tells us that that can't be the case. It, some people will say that. They don't marry, they can't be given in marriage, so that's the case. That, that verse out of Luke 20 disproves that it could have been angels. Remember, this is the traditional view. This is the view that all writers had during the first century, during the time of Jesus. We don't have any writings that take a different view than that view. Later on in church history, the other view comes up, and that's the popular view today because this is strange. Now, let me answer another question from our teaching. Uh, I, in our teaching, we talked about life after death in the Old Testament, and we read a lot of verses that proved that there was life after death in the Old Testament. And in the Saturday night study, I had said that there are people who say that the Old Testament doesn't have life after death in it, and it's usually connected to the teaching on hell. And so they asked for more details on that. Let me just say there are some scholars, Bart Ehrman is one of them. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar who is not a Christian, and he says that there are a lot of different beliefs in the Old Testament, but the vast majority say that there's no life after death, that you die and it's done but that is just not correct. I don't know whether, I'm not saying he's dishonest. I'm not saying he's mistaken. I guess it's gotta be one of those two and neither are good because he's a scholar and he should know better. The verses that we read, like Daniel 12, two about the resurrection, Isaiah 26, 19. And if you want more on that, you can go and reference our study from this weekend where we read six or, six or seven verses that talk about life after death. David talks about pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. The Bible talks about God ruining soul, uh, uh, the grave and death, becoming a plague and destroying them. What would that mean if it doesn't mean a resurrection? The Bible talks about the earth spitting out the dead, a resurrection. The Bible talks about being with God forever, awaking in his likeness. That's the resurrection. And then there's a few obscure verses that are misquoted, like, I think it's um, uh, Ecclesiastes 9.5, which says, the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. And so they take that dead know nothing and say, see, they didn't know anything. But it's talking about under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes is about living life apart from God. And what happens when you live your life apart from God? You die and you go into the grave and your body knows nothing. Later on in Ecclesiastes 12.7, it says, it says earlier than that, serve God while you're young, and then when you die, your body will go to dust, but your spirit will go into the presence of God. So it clearly teaches that there is life after death. And I think for the purposes of teaching about hell, a lot of times these guys will say they didn't understand it in the Old Testament so that they can kind of make their point that everything in the New Testament was manufactured 
and the church manufactured its ideas about hell. And I'm not even saying that they didn't. I'm not even disagreeing with Bart Ehrman about that. I think some of the concepts about hell have indeed been manufactured and are not biblical. And it's not going to be too long before we do a full series on heaven and hell, the biblical heaven and hell. I'm actually working on it right now. I am um, read Fat Francis Chan's book on hell. I'm reading Bart Ehrman's book now on heaven and hell. Again, he's a New Testament scholar, non-Christian, but a lot of good information in it. And um, so that's just the answer to that question. There's a reason why people want to say you don't find life after death in the Old Testament, but indeed you do. All right, so it's good to see you guys. Glad to have you here. Uh, we've got our questions that are rolling in. Uh, if you are visiting, or if you're here with us for the very first time, really glad you're here. Um, if you want to have a question, if you have a question, write the word question or put a question mark in front of it and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, I may just pass on it because I tried to take a stab at a couple of them that I don't understand and haven't gotten them right. So um, Andre has the first question again, and Andre is pretty good at getting us to the first question. And Andre says, many believe the 24 elders in Revelation are made up of at least the 12 apostles, Revelation 4.4. If then um, true, if true then, why didn't the apostle John recognize them or his fellow apostles? Yeah, and if it was John, he would have recognized himself, right? And that's what you're saying. He would recognize himself, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. The truth is, no one knows for sure. But if John, in the flesh, were looking at his glorified body, is it feasible he might not have recognized himself? And I think that could be the case. Personally, you know, we talk about leaning one direction or another direction, or your own theories about certain passages in the Bible, that it's really hard to find out who were these 24 elders. For me, I think the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob. And I think they cast their, thro their, their thrones down before it. It represents the church and Israel uh, in heaven. And um, I could be wrong. And, and the only thinking I've got for it, and this is funny, I know, is that there's 12 apostles and 12 children of, of Jacob, and that makes 24. And there's 24 elders. It just makes sense to me. I lean that way. Again, maybe I'm not right, but I lean that way. Um, could he have seen himself in his glorified body and not known it? Maybe, and, and, and maybe not. Maybe he would have gone, there I am, glorified, had he seen it. So good to see you guys, really glad that you're here. Good to see you fact check these hands. Our next question comes from them. Question, is there any indication in scripture of the possibility of glorified, that glorified bodies can or will produce with mortals um, or will procreate with mortals in the millennial kingdom. All right, so um, thanks, fact check these hands. Uh, I believe that Jesus's response that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage and we who are the sons of the resurrection will be like them tells us that we will not be able to commingle together with them. I wanna make sure I'm reading your question right. Glorified bodies can procreate with mortals, right? Um, okay, yeah, so no, I don't think that that can be a possibility. You say, well, what if, well, what if someone rebels? I don't think we will rebel. The angels rebelled from glory and fell from glory. We were in sin and we went into glory and I don't think that we'll ever rebel like the angels do. And if someone were to rebel and go and try to procreate with man, um, I'm not even sure it would be possible, but I would think that that's just not going to happen because of what Jesus said. And I would, I would hope that none of us would get into heaven and rebel. We talk about whether or not you can lose your salvation here. Imagine making it into glory, having, you're not even gonna have the sin nature anymore. We're gonna be transformed. So we're not like the angels. We are, in a way, we leapfrog over them and become greater than the angels because we're like Christ and we have perfect bodies and we're sinless. So I'm gonna come back to my answer, kind of talk myself into it and say, no, th that cannot happen and, and will not happen because we are, in the, we are the sons of the resurrection as Jesus says in John chapter 20. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Um, we have a question from Robin. 
Robin, good to see you. Good to have you here. Robin says, according to John 3, 16, whosoever believes in him will be saved. You also have to be born again. I believe Jesus died for my sins and was resurrected. I'm not sure if I'm born again. I have asked Jesus to come into my life. I want to be sure I will reign with him. How can I know that I'm born again? All right. Uh, great question, Robin. Really good question. And let's talk about it. So there is a passage in the, there, ah, there's a passage in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the book of John that says, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And then it says, by this, we know that we are in him. Now, this is where we check to see whether or not we are genuinely saved. I want to do what God wants me to do. I am obedient to what he wants me to do. Am I always obedient? No. Sometimes I'm not obedient to all that God has for me. Sometimes I struggle and I am tempted and I sin. And if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. And remember, if there's anybody that says, I don't have any sin, they're lying and the truth isn't in them. That's in 1 John chapter 1 as well. So the way that you examine yourself is, Robin, to say, do I want to do what God wants me to do? Do you do it? Doesn't mean you always do it, but it means the majority of time you do it. Those that practice sinful things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say those who do them occasionally, but those who practice them. And so if you're practicing sin, then your confidence of salvation has to be shaken. And I say that if you say, I say if you say that I'm, I'm born again, I love God, but I don't want to do what he wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do, but I'm born again. And I've seen this. I've seen people clearly in sin. I, I, I see, I've seen someone in an affair, clearly in sin, say that they are spiritual and say that they love God and what they're doing doesn't reveal that they're not spiritual. Not only does it reveal that they're not spiritual, I said, you need to ask yourself whether you're really in Christ. Because one of the transforming things that happen is that you keep his commandments and you want to do what he wants you to do. And if you have harbored, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, then when you, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking about a period of time. I'm talking about this, just, this is the way that you're living. You've harbored it. You've brought it in. You've tied it to a dock and you are not getting rid of it then you have to examine yourself. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. I don't want to judge anyone. And Robin, I don't want to judge you. I I'm just want to give you the truth of what the word of God says. So Robin, the question would be, do you want to do what God wants you to do? And are you doing the things that Jesus told you to do? And if you are, then you can have confidence that you have made that commitment to him. All right. So thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate it. And I hope that that is helpful. You know, let me just say one more thing about this. Uh, believing and being saved is the same as being born again. You, you, you don't believe and be saved and then you're born again. They're synonymous. They're the same thing. Your spirit is quickened to life when you receive Jesus. John 1.12, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So you receive him and you believe. You invite him in and you've done that. And if there, then there's their transformations that happen. You're hungry for the word of God. You want to do what God wants you to do. You're interested in godly things. And, and all those things happened to me when I was born again at 14. And then I walked away at 18, came back at 19. And all those things happened to me again. Suddenly I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And I had remorse and I felt horrible when I didn't, when I sinned. And I would call out to him to forgive me and he's faithful and just to forgive me. All right. So I hope that answers your question, Robin. And by the way, uh, you can always have a follow-up question. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Glad to have you here. Um, uh, Jari says, why can't we marry or have children in heaven? And if we can't, why can't we have sex, uh, sexual pleasure without procreation? Besides the fact that we are married to Jesus Thank you. Well, that would be a big fact. Um, 
because Jari, you're thinking of earthly pleasures and you're confusing them with heavenly pleasures. Uh, Jesus himself, let me just say that again, because you're thinking of earthly pleasures and you're confusing them with heavenly pleasures. When in heaven, we are not going to marry nor be given in marriage and there won't be sex. Sex is earthly. It's to, it's to bring a husband and wife close together. It's to have children. It's a way in which you work together to bring children into the world and which brings you closer. That will not happen in heaven. And I think that that is really important for us to understand. And I, hey, the, the, these are the things of this world, but the Bible says that we cannot even begin to imagine what God has planned for those who love him. And it's talking about an eternity. We can't imagine what God has planned for those of us that are going to live with him throughout all of eternity. And it will not be in the sexual realm. I realize that sex is very important here. Maybe our culture has it as too important. All right. So um, I think that's the answer to it. Um, as far as why, there's a lot of why questions here. Why can't we marry or have children in heaven? And if we can't, why can't we have sexual, sexual pleasure? Um, why questions? I don't know. God, God does what he does. And it's easier to answer what questions, who questions, but why questions? Maybe sometimes we have insight, but that's really hard to explain. Uh, so um, we have another question here from that comes to us from uh, looks like um, is yeah yeah YouTube explain Ezekiel sixteen eight doesn't use uncle and then it gives us the Strong's reference so let's go ahead and take time to look that up so let's go to let me get the Bible up here and go to Ezekiel I haven't had too much luck when it's been coming to answering questions out of Ezekiel so far. You know, you teach something a while ago and then it takes a while to get it back. Some of the stuff I've been asked about, I remember later on. And, um, but let's just take a look at this. Um, Ezekiel 16, 8. All right, almost there. I'm, I got a computer coming that's going to make this part of our Q&A much, much faster. So um, let's go ahead and bring it up on the screen for you. And so this is Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Also, Moses said, they shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread, full, uh, bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him, and we are, and what are we? Mm, okay, I'm not sure if that's the right passage. I, yeah, I don't get it. So, sorry, Ezekiel 16.8. Uh, maybe you can give a longer question to, to clarify exactly what you mean by that. I'm not sure where uncle comes into play there or if that's even the right verse. All right. Um, so we have another question. We have a question from Kimberly. So Kimberly says, particularly vets, uh, Timothy four, one through five. All right. Maybe this is a partial question, but let me just go and see if I can get to I think I know the passage you're talking about here in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Let's go and read that and we'll see. Um, maybe we can try to give a little bit more in the questions that might make it a little bit easier. So let's go ahead and look at it here. Uh, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctors of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and they know the truth. For every creature of God is good. So we're talking about vets, maybe veterinarians. Uh, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For if it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Sorry, Kimberly. I just, I just don't get the question. Um, and I'm sorry about that. Maybe it's really obvious and I'm not getting it. Maybe you guys are screaming at me through your screens right now about what she's really saying, but I don't get it. Maybe you can explain it a little bit more. You can follow up with another question, explain a little bit more what you're asking. And maybe you do. Maybe that was kind of just submitted wrongly. Um, 
All right, so um, we do have another question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over that now. For now, Jari, I'm gonna go to just take one question right now from people. If we get to the end, I've got more time. I'll try to come back to that question, all right? Or you can resubmit it at, our, at another Q&A. All right, so we've got a question from God is Holy. Good to see you, good to have you here with us. And says, when you die, when you die, does the spirit go to heaven if they are saved? If not, where does the spirit go? All right, thank you, God is holy. I appreciate that. So theologians call this the intermittent state. When you die, where do you go before the resurrection? You will one day be resurrected. That'll either happen at the rapture of the church, which is a resurrection. By the way, that's true whether or not you believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. There will be an event where we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, no matter what you believe about it. And it's a resurrection. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air and will be changed. But where will we go between now and then? The answer to that is in the presence of God. Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Paul told the Philippians, I, I have a hard time. I don't know. I want to stay here and minister to you, and I want to go be with God but I don't know which one I'll choose. And I don't know if he had a choice or not, but he's saying, I'm going to stay with you because it's better for you. I don't think Paul would have said that if he just had soul sleep. And that's the other question. That's the other response. People will say, well, when we die, we just go to sleep and we're all going to wake up together. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. The Bible uses the word sleep to talk about a Christian dying. Jesus did this with Lazarus. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in 1 Thessalonians. Those who sleep in Christ, it doesn't mean that they're asleep spiritually. It means that they close their eyes and their body, they died. And to, from, from an earthly perspective, they're sleeping, but they're present with the Lord. And we see in the book of Revelation that Christians who die during the tribulation period their spirits are under the altar in heaven. So they're in the presence of God. So again, we don't see them sleeping. We see them in the presence of God. And I realize that's a little different time after the first resurrection has taken place, but they're part of the first resurrection as well. Remember that the first resurrection started with Jesus, then the rapture of the church, and then those who are resurrected after the tribulation period. And the second resurrection is not called a second resurrection. In Revelation, it's called the second death. And they are all called out and they will be judged by God. Everyone for their works, the books will be opened and they will be judged. And that's a pretty scary thought. All right, so uh, I hope that that is helpful. The intermediate state, we go into the presence of God and that's where we are. In the Old Testament, if Jesus in Luke 17 is talking about a real place with Lazarus and the, and the uh, rich man, then it looks like there was a holding place before Christ and that he led them out of captivity and that there was a place that was a place of torment that was uncomfortable. It wasn't screaming, you know, skin burning off, eyes being gouged out, tongues being cut off kind of torment. But he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his hand in the water because he thirsted and it was hot there. So there is a place where there is torment while those who don't know Christ go to wait. And um, I think that that's probably what he means in Luke chapter 17. So I hope that's helpful. When you do know him, then um, you, you go into his presence. And that's, and, and I don't know, does he give you a, a temporary body? Paul talks about not being further unhoused, unclothed. Maybe he gives you a, a temporary body, but either way, you're in the presence of God, all right? So thank you very much. Um, so um, we have a question now from Kimberly. Maybe Kimberly is going to, yeah, I think you will kind of clarify what you're asking about 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Sorry, hit send by accident. That's what I thought happened. I was looking, I go, I don't, I don't get it. And maybe it's, you know, I've done it before where I've obviously misread something, thought I didn't understand it, but it was clear, but not this time. All right, Timothy 4, 1 through 5, particularly verse 3, forbidding to marry and abstain from foods. Could you explain this to come or already has been happening? Thank you. Um, so 
in the early church, there were a group of Christians who believed that it was evil to have sex. And even married people were forbidding each other. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, don't withhold from one another, but be there for each other, lest there be temptation. He also talks about marrying and not burning. So there was in the early church this false teaching that you were more spiritual if you abstained from sex, when God gave it for men and women in a married setting to enjoy. Uh, I think that in the last days, there's going to be forbidding to marry. Some have pointed out the Catholic Church and priests being forbidden to marry, to abstain from certain foods. There are those that want to go back to the dietary restrictions that we find in the Bible and from the Old Testament law, and they say that we're under it today. Maybe there's other foods that they will talk about abstaining, but these are false teachings. Remember, these are doctrines of demons. So I think that it is to come, but I think that winds of doctrine, like real wind is circular and it repeats itself. So winds of doctrines are circular. And the same doctrine comes back again and again and just looks a little different, dressed up a little differently. So I think that this forbidden to marriage has been in church history. Abstaining for foods has been in church history. And in the last days, and the question here is in 1 Timothy 1.4, is the last days, is it the last, last, the last of the last days? Because the last days are the church age that started at Pentecost when God said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so now everyone receives the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was just leaders that received the Holy Spirit. But today, everybody receives the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and read this one more time. I'll go ahead and pull this up for you on the screen now that we know what your question is. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines, and the doctrines of demons. And we, we have deconstruction happening today. And maybe we're seeing people leave the faith. And this is a fulfillment of the great falling away spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which may be the rapture or it may be an actual falling away. Uh, the word is departure there. It says, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Okay, these are false teachers. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. Forbidding to marry and command those to abstain from food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right. So, yeah, I think that we've got, um, I think that we've got, Kimberly, that question pretty much answered. Um, I think it, it, it is, has been in the past and probably will be again in the last days. All right. So, thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from Annika. So, Annika says, good to see you, by the way, Annika. Annika says, what are your thoughts on the lack of masculine defense of truth in the church? Reference Eric Luddy's book, Bravehearted Gospel. All right, I'm sorry, Annika. I'm not familiar with the book. Um, what are your thoughts on the lack of masculine defense of truth in the church? So, I'm sorry, I'm just not familiar with it. Rather than try to take a stab at something that I don't know, uh, the lack of masculine defense in the truth of the church, I don't know that I would think that that wouldn't be the case. Um, we are told that we're like soldiers of Christ and we need to discipline ourselves. Paul said, I, I beat um, my body. I, I don't box like I'm boxing the air. A lot of those are masculine well, yeah, they're masculine statements, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the book. I'm really sorry. Um, I'll try to take a look at it. I'll try to remember to take a look at it. I'll be looking out for it to see if I can find it. Um, I'm reading a couple of other books right now, but hey, if there's something that's going on in the church today, I like to read up on it and just to know what's going on. So I'll see if I remember. Kimberly, I need to have something here I can take a note with, that notepad, or, or just take a quick note and come back and get later on. All right, but glad to have you uh, with us. So, let's see. We have another question from, uh, is it uh, Dottie? Dottie joins us from Facebook. Dottie says, question, someone that I'm close to has been saved and baptized. He has an anger problem and curses constantly. He doesn't seem to understand that you're not supposed to and continues this behavior. 
if you're trying to live as a Christian, he thinks I'm wrong, am I? So there's a passage, Dottie, in the Bible, in Ephesians, I think, that says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And I would think that that would be cursing, dirty jokes, um, double innuendos, which would be, I guess, another form of a dirty joke. I think that all of these things should not happen with Christians. And in the book of James, we're told that the tongue is, can, can set the world on fire. And that when we sin in the things that we say, that there are, well, there's just a lot of awful things that can happen. So you're right. We are not supposed to curse, especially curse continually. And my prayer for him would be that he is convicted. If a genuine Christian, he's got to be convicted by it and not just something that he wants to do. I do know a while back there was a move, especially in what was the neo-Calvinists back in the 2000s, where they were kind of like, you know, we can cuss, smoke cigars. Um, There's just a lot of that going on. And um, some pastors, some of these pastors even cussed from the pulpit, kind of their 15 minutes of fame. And all that went the way of the dodo bird because it's just wrong. Can you imagine taking the pulpit that's supposed to be for the word of God and using it to curse? It just, I just can't even begin to fathom it. So pray that he is convicted and that we would praise God with our lips. The same lips that praise God are the ones that curse. And again, that's, I think that's out of the book of James, still talking about the tongue. So they're cursing when with the, with the lips that are supposed to praise and worship God. So yeah, he is wrong. And maybe you can look up that passage um, out of the book of James on the tongue and read that. And you might be able to read it to him and um, pray that he's convicted. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict him. The word convict means to convince. It doesn't condemn us, but convinces us that we need to change. And if there's something going on in my life that I need to change, I want to make sure that I change it. All right. So we want to welcome you guys who are joining us now. Uh, this is a regular Q&A that we do on Wednesdays and Saturdays. That is a supplement to the teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson, where I pastor. Uh, we want to come on and look at any questions. You may have been looking at any of our studies or hot topics, and you may have a question and you can bring those questions here. We'll also take any question that you have and see if we can answer them. Again, I'm not saying that I have all the answers, certainly don't, but we want to take a look and see. And um, if you're a new believer, you can ask questions too. No question is too basic for us to be able to spend a few minutes uh, to be able to take care of it. All right. So um, let's see. Let's go back to the question that Jari had. If you have a question, then write the word question down, write out your question, and then reread it a couple of times and make sure that it makes sense. So um, Jari had another question here. I'm going to get back to it. All right. Let's see. So we've already done that one. All right. So um, Jari says, follow up. Will the Nephilim return transhumanism, etc.? Also, can angels die? Thank you. Um, I don't I don't know if the Nephilim will return or not. I'm trying to think if there's any passage that speaks of them in the Old Testament time. I mean in the um in the in eschatology in the very last of the last days. I'm gonna give an I don't know, but leaning towards no. Um, no, angels cannot die. Which is why hell is eternal because it was made for Satan and his angels. And all who are put into the, the all, all who are put into Hades will be cast into hell. And as I said, there is, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it together now. 
I'm finally doing it. I've been saying that I'm going to do it forever, but I'm putting together now the study on hell, the biblical study on heaven and hell. We want to look at it in the Old Testament. We want to look at what the different words mean. We want to look at what the Bible says. And um, it says some things that are different than what people teach. Like, I don't think it's biblical to say that someone is, is, is having their flesh filleted off, filleted off their body forever and then regenerate and flayed and regenerate and flayed. I don't think that's biblical. I think that comes from somewhere else. And we'll talk about where that comes from in the midst of those studies. All right. So let me just go ahead and take a look if there are any other questions that we have. If not, I got a couple of questions that I can go to. And if you have a question, then you can write the word question out. And um, so, uh, okay, we have a question from John P. Let me see if we've got any other questions before that. Um, all right. All right, so let's go. Let's, um, let's bring in your question. We got a couple of them coming in now. Um, John says, John P. says, why is the church so against smoking tobacco? Well, John, I think our culture's against smoking tobacco. I think there was a time where, <coughs> where it was more accepted, but in America, in evangelical churches around the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th century, we're now in the 21st, uh, that, right? Am I right? Um, yeah, I am. Yeah, in the, in the turn of the century, from the 18 whatevers to the 19 whatevers, there was a move in the United States to get rid of alcohol and to get rid of tobacco. And that carried over into the church. And so the church in the United States kind of took that. When churches in Europe and in other parts of the world didn't follow that. So that's why today you'll have Christians in Europe, real born-again Christians, who will sit down and have a beer and think nothing of it. Oftentimes they won't have any caffeine, but tobacco was connected in that. Now, when it comes to tobacco, the Bible never says, don't dry out a plant, put it inside a paper, light it on fire and suck it into your lungs. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. And I think that God is much more concerned about the way we're interacting with people, but is it a good idea? There's a lot of complications that come with it. And I think we can make an argument that God wants us to be healthy, but I also think there's a lot of people who don't eat healthy that might judge someone for smoking that's not healthy. So this is why we don't want to be, we don't want to pass judgment on people. And I don't pass judgment on someone who's smoking. When I see, when I'm, when I'm leaving one campus and going to another campus and I see someone's left church and they're lighting up on the way to their car, I don't judge them. I don't think that person is not a Christian because there's nothing in the Bible that says don't do it. I don't think it's a good idea. There, you know, cancer is a part of it. Emphysema is a part of it. And, and you should try to break that habit. But I think the church in America is against it in a different way than the church in the world is against it. And I think that has to do with a lot of the way that the church was in the early 1900s, late 1800s and early 1900s. And I think it's good for us to look at that, to look back at those roots and to see what did we have right and wrong? What did we inherit as the church? And are we pointing to something that is wrong and acting that is right and okay and acting like it is wrong because of what we were handed through the church in America, which had a lot of things wrong. I'll give you another example. They believed that you go to church dressed to the hilt. In the 60s, you did not dress casually. When the hippies got saved, it was like a reformation. And it happened in Calvary Chapel, by the way, where they started coming into church and it didn't care how they, how they dressed. I remember a song by, I think it was Love Song that wrote, short hair, long hair, uh, suits and ties. We just want to praise the Lord. Uh, and there's some other lyrics that go with it, but there was a transformation that happened. And now people go to church much more casual. They didn't do it in the 60s. And I think that things will continue to transform and change um, over time. And sometimes people will get legalistic about things. There was a time in church history where wearing buttons was thought to be sinful because they were flashy and you wanted eyelets in everything and you didn't want any buttons uh, to take place. All right. So I think that will help. Um, 
John, if uh, you, uh, yeah, if you are um, having a problem, I'm not saying you are, um, coughing, talking about smoking, okay, yeah. <clears throat> All right, so uh, let's see if you have any more questions here. If not, I'm gonna go ahead, yeah, let me go ahead and pull up a couple questions here that we have preloaded. Uh, where am I gonna find those at? Somehow, they have, my scenes have disappeared. Let me see what I've got going on here. Let me get rid of, I need to make sure if I get rid of, okay, let me get rid of that, they're probably gonna be there. Oh, um, yeah, I don't know what that was. So, let me see if I can find my scenes here. There they are, I'm gonna go back to my default scene. What did I do to my default scene? Let me see if I can fix this. All right, there I am, all right. So um, let's see if this, uh, my scriptures are still there. Scriptures are still there. Okay, every, everything's good. All right, so um, let me go ahead and go to another question that we have that was asked a while back. It says, the church I attend has a lot of difficulties. When is the right time to leave a church? All right, so this is a good question and we seem to have to deal with this from time to time. I've left one church and went to another church. The question really here is, I mean, I have to make a lot of assumption. The church I attend has a lot of difficulties, has had a lot of difficulties. I don't know what those difficulties are. Sometimes there are difficulties in a church that we shouldn't leave over and we are to be connected and love one another and we certainly should not leave at a drop of a hat. You have the right to choose your church and to move churches and to put yourself under the authority, the spiritual authority of anyone that is out there. However, you also have a responsibility to the people that you that are there in the church and that you love. And if something is the difficulties, whatever those difficulties might be, um, when is the right time to leave a church? Uh, I think I'm going to give you a few, a few cases when false teachings happening when the pulpit isn't faithfully being used to preach the gospel and the word of God, when there's no preaching of the word or teaching, you shouldn't find yourself in a church that's basically motivational speaking from the pulpit. That might get a lot of people feeling good, but we shouldn't do it. Number two, if there's just bitterness and hatred that is permeating the church and comes from leadership, there's always going to be some bitterness and, and maybe even some hatred that takes place. But if, if, it, if it is connected to leadership, then you want to get out of there. Let me give you another one. When the, the pastors start lording over you, telling you what you can and can't do. You can't leave our church. You can't marry that person. You can't move out of state. All of these probably to protect their church. And Jesus said, not to lord over the flock. It's his flock. And we're not to lord over it, but we're to live as examples before him. And so if that's the case, get out of there as fast as you can. If they're teaching false doctrine, that you can be saved by some kind of work, speaking in tongues, being baptized by water, um, <clears throat> uh, going to church on Saturday, saves you. Now, Seventh-day Adventist churches are different. They're all different. And so some of them prefer to go to church on Saturday and some of them make it a requirement of salvation and everybody else has taken the mark of the beast. So you have to determine these false teachings that are there and decide whether or not it's something that you should leave a church over. All right. So there's probably some other things um, that are out there. And if you have any more specifics on what those problems are, uh, then I, uh, yeah, um, if you have what the problem, then, then go ahead and write back. All right. And I see Keith saying here that, um, yeah, that I'm not judging anybody who smokes. I'm not judging anyone who smokes. I'm just saying it's not the healthiest choice, but there's a lot of things people do that are not the healthiest choice, right? A lot of people don't eat healthy. And so if we're going to you know, try to take the speck out of someone's eye, we need to take the speck out of our own eyes. So, um, Roderick says, um, what's, what's wrong with speaking in tongues? When did tongues cease? And, um, thank you, Roderick, Rod, Rod, Rod Ricks. Uh, there's nothing wrong with speaking in tongues. 
and I don't believe that tongues have ceased. I think the Holy Spirit can move in certain ways at certain times using certain gifts more than other gifts. There may have been times in the past where tongues were used more. My statement was when people say, and this happens in the Pentecostal and charismatic churches, which I was a part of for many years. In fact, Calvary chapels, which I pastor at Calvary chapel is technically part of the, the charismatic movement. Although we don't like to identify with it because of a lot of the strange things that happen within churches is part of the charismatic movement. But we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe they're for today. We believe they haven't ceased. The problem is, is when they say you're saved when you speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And that happens in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. You're not saved because you're not speaking in tongues. And that's problematic. Just like any other works that would be problematic. Anything else that you might say, I, uh, you got to do in order to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith without works, lest any man would boast. And that's Ephesians two, eight and nine. All right. So thank you for your question there. Point of clarification. I don't know that I said that, but if I did, I certainly wouldn't want to do it. All right. So we have a question here from JG and JG says question. Do you think the world will be beyond chaotic and wicked before the rapture? I'm going to be honest with you, JG. I think the world is beyond chaotic and wicked right now. I think there's a lot going on in the world. I think the world is taking a move towards socialism and socialism has been bad all around the world, everywhere it's tried being able to redistribute the money to certain people, taking from some and giving to others is problematic. And I think that there's chaos in the world today. And I think that the division within politics, it's not just happening in the U S it's happening everywhere. People are putting this emphasis upon politics that shouldn't be done. And even in the church it's happening and people will get upset at me for saying that, but it's true. And instead of putting the emphasis on Christ, They're putting the emphasis on politics. Well, well, politicians aren't going to save you. It's not going to, you got to trust in Christ and and he's going to be the one who changes the world. So do I think that it will be beyond, I know this, that the wicked will become more wicked and the righteous will become more righteous. The filthy will become more filthy and those who are righteous will become more righteous. So I do think that those kind of things will happen and there will be those who are doing evil things. All right. So, um, yeah, I think we're there. I, I believe Jesus is coming back soon. I hope he waits so more people can get saved. And I ask Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I want to see people saved because God wants to see people saved. God's not slack concerning his promises, but desires all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. All right. Um, so Andre has another question. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Does Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 imply that angels only minister to those who have or will inherit salvation, not to those who won't? All right, that's a good question. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a look at that. I'm going to go to Hebrews 1. We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter because that's where this is at. And so the book of Hebrews is all about the preeminence, right? It's all about uh, Jesus being greater than the angels, greater than anyone. The whole book of Hebrews is about the preeminence of Christ. And, and he's dealing with angels in chapter one. And he says, to which of the angels did he ever said, set on my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. He's showing that Jesus is greater, excuse me, greater than the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So looking at the way that that's worded and thinking about your question, for those who will inherit salvation. Does Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 imply that angels only minister to those who will inherit salvation, not to those who won't? Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly what it's saying. And it's really interesting that angels are our servants because remember the word minister is to serve angels minister to Jesus by strengthening him twice and angels. And this kind of carries on the thought in the old Testament 
where God raised the younger above the older. The older had the first, the right of the firstborn, but God would often reverse that with Jacob, with Joseph, with others. Um, and we are lower than the angels, it says in the book of Philippians, but God has angels serving us. And we've been entrusted the gospel. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. And angels long to look into the things that we are experiencing and going through. So yes, angels minister to us, to those who inherit salvation. The verse certainly doesn't say that they're ministering to those who won't. Maybe angels do, but specifically, they are ministering spirits sent to help minister to us. And I think angels must be blown away when they see us. A lot of times when they see us, they see us getting nitpicky. They see us getting angry. They see us getting upset. I think a lot of times angels are like, what in the world is going on? Why did God choose these people? All right. So thank you very much. Uh, we have just a few more minutes. If you have another question, we probably have time to take it. Uh, if you are joining us for the very first time, really glad you're here. I want to remind you that this is a podcast and all of these Q and A's go up on that podcast as well as our full length teachings. Currently we're in the book of Luke and in the book of Galatians. The series that we'll do afterwards on heaven and hell will be on the podcast as well. That's Truth Quest Podcast with Robert Furrow. You can subscribe anywhere that you subscribe for your podcasts. Um, also, this Q&A is a supplement to our teachings. That is our full-length teachings or the hot topics or maybe even a, a Q&A that's in the past that you just want to kind of clarify. You can ask questions about it. Our desire is to make a connection based on those things that we're doing in the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. All right, so uh, we are almost done here. Let me see if we have, um, all right, so we have a question from Kay. So Kay says, um, all right, Kay, good to see you. Uh, did sin exist in another realm before Lucifer? All right, so let's just talk about Lucifer for a minute and I'll answer the question. Lucifer is in his name. Lucifer is Latin for morning star, for Venus. And God was mocking him in Isaiah 14, I think it's verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O son of the morning. You're, you wanted to be the morning star? You wanted to put your, your throne above the throne of God? You wanted to shine forever? See, the problem comes when you read later on, I think it's in 1 Peter, and it says, may the morning star arise in your heart. And then you look back at Isaiah 14, 12 and go, well, Satan's called the morning star and Jesus is called the morning star. And so some people have a real problem with that. And that's because Lucifer wanted to be the morning star. Jesus is the morning star and Satan wanted to be it. It's not his name. We don't know his name. And I'm really glad about that. So that's just a point, okay, that um, I wanted to make here. Um, did evil exist in another realm before, before Satan fell? Um, I don't think we can answer that. I think we don't know what was going on before the celestial creation. We don't even really have an account of that. We know that when the foundations of the earth were laid, it says in the book of Job, that all the sons of God and all the stars shouted for joy. It's just, it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because it's the creation of the world and the angels shouting for joy. But I don't think that we know what else happened or, or we can say we think we know. Um, I've heard some logical arguments from certain scriptures that we have to be all there is, but I don't know that I agree with it. I think we might be taking statements that are made for one thing and trying to make them into something else. That's always a dangerous thing to do. When you're taking the point that's being made one way in scripture and you use that to have it say something else, that really is problematic. And um, I think there's problems there. I just don't think we know. Okay. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really do appreciate that. It's good to see you guys. This ends our Q&A for today. It's been good being here with you guys. I hope you are blessed. Stay close to Jesus. Continue to search the word of God to see if God has anything for you. Um, uh, it's a mistranslation. actual word is shiny one. So let me just, uh, before I, I go off here, um, JG is, says that the actual word is the shining one. Let me just take a couple more minutes. I probably shouldn't do this because I'm running out of time, but I want to do this because I think it's important. So we're going to Isaiah 
1412 in the Strong's Bible, in the Strong Concordance. Isaiah 14, I'm going to verse 12, and here it says, and I'm going to go ahead and put this on the screen for you, how you, um, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. And then I'm going to click on Lucifer, and it gives us the definition. From, in the sense of brightness, the morning star, which is Venus. So, yeah, that's, that's what it means. It means morning star, and the morning star is Venus. And look it up in Latin. Look up what Venus is in Latin. It's, it's Lucifer, all right? So, again, thank you guys very much uh, for your questions. Love it. And I uh, love the interaction that we have here, the community that we're building. Stay close to Jesus. Continue to love him. Uh, I will be back again, Lord willing, next Saturday. We have a service in an hour from now that starts. Uh, we're in Galatians. We're talking about exchanging sonship for bondage, that you would be under bondage instead of being a child of God. And Paul, he pleads with them that they would turn away from this because they've given up and, and they've exchanged the gospel for another gospel. All right, love you guys. God bless you. Stay close with Jesus, to Jesus. I'm out of here. I got to get to church. Uh, we'll talk to you guys later on.